I've never had an interview come out like this. And we've had some pretty amazing, pretty emotional interviews. And it's pretty fascinating that's happening at this time. We are celebrating our 5 millionth download because of you and the, and the graciousness of God. And we're about to make a pretty big announcement about the future of this cast that's coming at this time. And I'm having one of those full circle moments. Um, I was there, of course, when COVID began and I watched the media tell one story. I, I watched the setups. I watched so-called news organizations trying to get people to stand in line so it would look like they're trying to get into the hospital, reporting that the hospitals were jam-packed and <clears throat> no one could get in, and that wasn't true. Reporting that ice rinks, and in fact, Grand Central Station was going to have to be used to store bodies. It wasn't true. It was never true. It was all a lie. Well, that was the beginning. We're now watching people die from the mRNA injections. And I had an opportunity to chat today with a guy I've wanted to chat with for a very long time. His name is Mr. John O'Looney. He runs MK Family Funeral Services uh, in England. The interview is so important that I want to run it without a break. And I want to frame this so that we all know it's all been planned from the beginning to even the end as kids are dying from the mRNA injections. Todd Herman Show is 100% disapproved by big pharma, technocrats, and tyrants everywhere. Now, from the high mountains of free America, here's the Emerald City Exile, Todd Herman. Today is the day the Lord has made, and these are the times through which God has decided we shall live. Huge thank you to the team that made this all happen. Five million downloads on a podcast that isn't even a year old. Uh, thank you, Rush. Thank you, EIB. Thank you, God, uh, for putting us together. I went back and looked to the archives of COVID shows today. And I remember talking uh, with experts, dissident doctors from the very, very beginning and noticing things from the very, very beginning. And this was an amazing full circle moment. Um, and talking today with John O'Looney, you're going to hear this interview and I want you to hear it uninterrupted. And I want you to experience it the way I experienced it. And I, and I beg you to listen to the whole thing. And, and, and I beg you to listen to it on normal speed. I know I have dear friends who listen to the show sped up because they listen to a lot of podcasts. You speed this part up if you like. But I beg you to listen to me and John O'Looney talking in live time. Because what unfolds in this interview blew my mind. And well, it did and it didn't in that all things are possible with God. But... <laughs> After I talked with Mr. O'Looney, I went back and I went into the archives and I watched an interview again that happened super early uh, with the Great Barrington Declaration, one of the founders of that, Dr. Martin Koldorf. Because what John O'Looney is going to share with us today 
is a government that coordinated with media to rig interviews, to stage them, to dress people up, to tell them what to say. And a government that was demanding everything be a COVID death. That's in the UK. The same thing was true here. I remember talking to doctors who were about to have their careers destroyed by state health boards. Because like Dr. Scott Jensen, now running for governor of Minnesota, he was a state senator at the time. Because he wouldn't falsify death certificates. That happened in England. About the bounties they were paying for COVID deaths. About government officials trying to strong arm Mr. O'Looney. And now... Only dissident media will talk to him, and it used to be that the BBC couldn't beat down his door hard enough. So I'm going to hear you get play for you part of the discussion with Martin Koldorf, and remember that, and then completely unbroken, uninterrupted, I want you to hear John O'Looney. Hey, as we look back on now 5 million downloads, not even a year old, and we think about how this all got started. I am going to mention again, uh, my partner uh, in the show and my brother, Zach Abraham. And I say partner because we never, ever, ever could have been where we're at without the help of Zach Abraham and Bulwark Capital Management. And it is so like Zach to jump in and help in ways that were not expected. I, I, frankly, I expected to pay a lot of money and there was a startup cost to this, but I expected to pay a lot more. But my friend Zach stepped in and I didn't have to pay as much. And that was a huge blessing. He does this because he believes in getting the truth to people. He does this because he understands, and he and I are very, very melded together this year, it, it, philosophically, that we are going to tell the truth as we see it no matter what. Zach does this in the world of finance. <laughs> Guys, there is nothing to be gained for Zach calling out Tom Steyer or calling out the people at BlackRock and, and Ken Fink by name and, and calling out the people at the Treasury by name and calling them the worst predictors in the world of finance. There's no win. I mean, these are very powerful people. He does this because he cares about money for you, for stewarding it. And Bulwark Capital Management has an obsessive focus on risk management. And in a world of a rigged up financial system, 0% interest rate loans, well, to the insiders and conjuring of money, you got to talk about risk management, but you got to do more than that. You got to be focused on it. And they are at Bulwark Capital Management. Call them at 866-779-RISK. If you're five to 10 years from retirement, you cannot endure a bump in the road. 866-779-RISK or knowyourriskradio.com. Investment advice cannot be given without a client services agreement. Bulwark Capital Management and Investment Advisor Representative, Trek Financial LLC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. So John O'Looney um, had the BBC come to his door, and you'll hear the whole discussion with John coming up. But I wanted to start here and then compare uh, with Dr. Martin Koldorf and what Dr. Koldorf went through. So the BBC showed up at, at his funeral home, John Aloney's funeral home, and they asked him to do an interview. His recollection, he's never done an interview prior to this, 
but they didn't just want an interview. They they wanted a very specific type of interview. The BBC, anyway, they arranged to come in and do an interview and they got me to dress up in PPE. And it's really strange because I've done many interviews. I've never done an, an interview before COVID, really, that I could ever remember doing. And this interview is very strange on reflection. At the time, it was the first one I'd ever done. And they spent about 40 minutes telling me the questions they were going to ask me and briefing me word for word for the exact answer. And they got me to dress up in PPE and put a mask on and oh. goggles and yeah, stuff that I wouldn't normally have worn. And I felt a little bit uncomfortable, but I kind of, you know, you, okay, if that's what you want me to do. And, you know, this is really dangerous. And, and, you know, it was very early in the, in the game. And um, on reflection, I bitterly regret it because all I did was they used me to push the hysteria and the propaganda, you know. So as we look back at where we're at with the program and we look back in time, let's remember some things together. Let's remember the propaganda videos out of the Chinese Communist Party controlled country of China. People walking through a mall, like eating ice cream, falling over dead from the COVID flu. That has never happened. That's never once occurred. I remember people getting on buses and dying from the COVID flu. It's never happened. And these videos leaked out of China. And it was bought. Except it wasn't bought. It was placed. Back at that time, I began to use a phrase that my wife suggested. News programmers. Programming people. Remember about the fake lines. And if you don't, in cities like Chicago, Mockingbird Media would show up and they would pay staffers to drive around the block in cars. So it looked like people couldn't get into the hospitals. So it looked like the lines were filling up. You will remember the videos of people walking through hospitals that were empty. Well, John O'Looney, and you'll hear him discuss this, was told he was getting calls from government. How many bodies can you store? What's your refrigeration capacity? In England, they made the announcement, we may need to shut down the hockey rinks. We may need to fill the hockey rinks with dead bodies. You remember the um, aircraft carriers that President Trump dispatched to New York for the corrupt dictator of New York, Andrew Cuomo? He also dispatched them to Los Angeles and he also dispatched monies to cities like New York to, to change Madison Square Garden into treatment center. In the separate country of Washington State, the dictator there, Jay Inslee, got money to change uh, the soccer stadiums into care facilities that saw no one. The aircraft carriers in New York, we're treating people who were in car crashes or in sports injuries. They weren't treating COVID patients. So the PSYOP was installed from the very beginning. Then came the Great Barrington Declaration as the lockdowns began. You know about the lies. You know about two weeks to flatten the curve. You know that Debbie Burks has now admitted that was never the case. It was never going to be two weeks. She intended for it to be longer. She had no data for that. She had the videos from China, the staged videos from China. They're staged because that's not how COVID works. 
You don't walk around dropping dead from COVID. And there were young people walking around dropping dead. It was a lie. It was a setup. The whole thing was a setup. And the setup now is resulting in dead kids. You'll hear from John about the substances they're pulling out of the arteries of deceased young people, a substance that might be called a blood clot, except that's not how blood clots work. He says, if you touch it, it's the consistency of calamari. It's these white, long threads, thick, that don't break when pulled out with tweezers. Scientific paper has uncovered a mechanism for this. It's misfolded hemoglobin. And the prognostications that John O'Looney has gotten from some of the experts about the life expectancy of people who continue to get injected is truly shocking. But into the time frame of the Great Barrington Declaration, suddenly we had this hope. And I remember at the time saying, okay, at last, okay, finally, we're going to get some common sense. Because these are very esteemed physicians and epidemiologists. They're from Oxford. They're from Stanford. Uh, they're from Harvard. And they're coming out and stating things that are basic epidemiological approaches to this. And they're speaking in terms of death rate and stratification, risk stratification, which, of course, is at the very center of emergency medicine. The very center of emergency medicine are triage decisions. The person who has a bullet wound that has scraped the aorta and the aorta may well break is going to get seen before the person with a broken ankle. It's triage, just like in the case of an upper respiratory virus, the people most likely to die from it need to have the attention, whereas other people who are not going to die from it are in fact helpful. And this was at the time where the World Health Organization was changing the phrase herd immunity to herd thinking, herd behaviors. I got into a Twitter discussion with one of the uh, PSYOP directors for the dictator of Washington State, Jay Inslee. And this guy was calling herd immunity herd mentality. I asked Dr. Martin Koldorf, PhD, about herd immunity. And his response sticks with me uh, to this day because his response is filled with absolute common sense. Is herd immunity some weird theory? No, it's sort of stunning as a scientist to, uh, to see people talk about herd immunity in this way because... Herd immunity is a well-established scientific fact, a phenomena that we know exists for infectious diseases, and every epidemiologist will acknowledge that it does exist. So uh, it's like gravity. It's a fact in physics. Yeah. And to talk about uh, herd immunity strategy doesn't make sense because whatever strategy we use for COVID-19, we will eventually end up with herd immunity sooner or later. So it's like two airplane pilots sitting up in the airplane, up in the air, discussing, well, should we use the gravity strategy to land the plane or not? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, the purpose, uh, I mean, the plane is going to get down to the ground on, uh, sooner or later, no matter what they do. Uh, but the purpose is to land the plane with as few casualties as possible. And with uh, COVID-19, the purpose is that we need to get through this pandemic 
uh, with as few mortality, as few deaths as possible. I was the sole media figure in the top, let's see, we were the seventh biggest market in the country. We were the number three radio show in our demo. We were the top number one talk radio show in the mornings in that demo, in our core demo. The other things were music. No other media picked that up. No one. This was a couple of weeks after the Great Barrington Declaration was founded. Very quickly, there were two or 3,000 scientists who signed on to this. Ultimately, it was about 18,000 doctors and scientists on a global basis signed on to this. All they were saying is let people live. Take people who are at risk and let the, and let the others go develop herd immunity. They're not going to die from this. Compared to what John Looney's been through, John Looney, they're no longer doing autopsies in England. They're trying everything they can to do, not do autopsies. Um, they've done this, and he'll hear him talk about this. John O'Looney's funeral home, uh, he will not charge for people who are having to go through the incredible pain of burying a child. MK Family Funeral Services will not do that. John O'Looney picks those costs up, including often the costs of the casket. He refuses to make a live or make a profit on the funeral of a child. Below the age 18, won't do it. Um, they've changed things. Kids, little babies are no longer being sent to funeral homes. They're being, well, cremated at the hospital. Why? Throughout the period of time where John O'Looney was told to expect mass casualties, where he was told, you're on watch you got to be ready to accept thousands and thousands of bodies. They didn't come. It never happened. The rate of death never went up. And when they did come, they were coming from hospitals. Not from home. He wasn't picking up people who died from or with COVID from home, but from hospitals. He'll tell you about an incredible change that happened, that, that one of the so-called health ministers there made the most interesting decision. And this should sound very, very familiar to you if you have followed COVID closely. One of the so-called health ministers decided, hey, why don't we take elderly patients uh, who are COVID positive and why don't we put them in nursing homes? Does that sound familiar? That is exactly what they did in New York and the separate country of Washington. It had exactly the results one would expect. But then there's this. And John O'Looney describes this in vivid detail. There was the every death is a COVID death. 
And he'll tell you some very specific and very sad stories about that. In the separate country of Washington State, where I couldn't get a single colleague to run my Great Barrington Declaration material, not one. Not even in the radio station cluster in which I worked. My friend Jason Rance mentioned it, gave me congratulations. In fact, no, let me take that back. Jason did run some clips from it. My friend Dory Monson may have, but no, no news. Um, at that same period of time, everything had to be a COVID death. In the separate country of Washington, they got caught twice labeling suicides, people shooting themselves in the head as COVID deaths. John O'Looney is going to tell you about the effort the uh, bosses, government bosses made to get him to call everything a COVID death. And it reminded me again of Dr. Martin Koldorf. When I really figured out what, how huge the scam was, early on, my listeners, we all figured out the PCR swindle. We all figured out, oh, so it's, if there's a positive test, you can, you can just turn up the testing and get more instances of COVID if that's what you want and that's what they wanted. But when I learned about how purposely inaccurate they were making the, 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 the PCR tests and calling things cases. I asked myself a very simple question. What in the name of God is a case? What, what, what constitutes a case? And when I realized a case could be someone whose lungs are filled with fluid and they've gotten the, you know, pneumonia through the COVID and they're in a dying state, that's a case. Or someone who's asymptomatic, because that was when they were still pretending asymptomatic cases spread this stuff. I realized a case is anything they want it to be. In other words, it was everything. A case was everything. I asked Martin Koldorf about cases because it bears the same swindle as John O'Looney went through with deaths. And then something magical happened when the injections came out. Something magical, same magical thing happening now in the UK. Then you'll hear uninterrupted from John O'Looney with MK Fam, uh, Family Funeral Services in the UK. So incredibly thankful for the opportunity that you've given us as we celebrate our 5 millionth download uh, to help grow a company called Allen's Soaps. We have big changes coming to this podcast um, in terms of our scope and our reach. Glory be to God. And one of the things I want to continue to do is to help businesses like this grow. It's so meaningful to me that young Alan, so impacted by autism and yet refusing to stop working. I love this. I love this young man so deeply because of what he displays. The thing that will get you through life is perseverance. Perseverance trumps everything. It really does. You can be as talented as you want. If, if you let life get in your way and, and grind you down, I don't care about your talent. The perseverance that Alan shows at Alan's Artisan Soaps comes with something else. It comes with joy. He's a joyful kid. This is a kid who can't form sentences. He went through, I think, his, uh, it's either seventh or eighth really serious surgery. I mean, super serious. The stuff that you could die from. And yet, his joy perseveres. And the soap products that he puts out, 
in addition to the ancillary products that come with that, the soap racks. And I know there's fancy names for washcloths that are incredibly soft, but I have one. And I let my family touch it, but that's it. They don't get to, it's, it's my special soft, it's soft uh, washcloth. I know that that's a man thing, like pretty manly, right? Here's what I want to ask you to do. On this 5 millionth download, if you're one of our family members in the podcast, haven't yet tried Allen Soaps, we go try it. On, on just about everything you get, a, well, on everything you get a 10% discount when you use the code Todd, T-O-D-D. And then on the new bundles, the themed bundles like red, white, and blue and always summer, botanical, those bundles, you get 15% off or a little bit, a little bit over 15% off. Again, use the code word Todd. It's allenssoaps.com, A-L-A-N-S soaps.com slash Todd. And I want to thank you for helping us help them. Hey, during the time frame that we've worked with Allen's, they've gotten into some premier retail stores. And the people who tried the soap, there's no going back to the big factory soap when you know that young Allen works on everything. He's overseen it all. He's the chief soap officer for real. So it wasn't just me that had trouble getting the Great Barrington Declaration story told. Um, some of the most preeminent epidemiologists in the world who had gotten published hundreds of times and combined nearly a thousand times. That's, that's not that easy to do when you're getting um, peer-reviewed work published. All of a sudden, they couldn't get peer-reviewed work published. All of a sudden, the journals wouldn't take their work. And what were they saying? Very controversial things like the T-cell immunities in crossover immunities in our body recognize the COVID flu. There is immunity to it. We do have innate immunities. The idea that this is a novel virus is garbage. It's nonsense. It's trash. It's a lie. They couldn't get that published, even though they were showing it. They weren't saying it. They weren't saying, oh, in my opinion. No, they were showing. Here's the, here's the T-cell interacting with this. Here's where the T-cells are being recruited. Here's the immune process working. How do you know that? It's not that hard. Oh, the white blood cells didn't get called in. It's not that hard. These people are overcoming the virus without the aid of the white blood cells. They're not getting a fever. Why? Because crossover immunity and T-cell immunity is doing its job. It's isolating the virus in the body and cutting it off from being able to go in and infect the body. It's not a guess. It's a, hey, this is happening. That couldn't get published. John O'Looney, the media went sprinting to him when he didn't understand how corrupt the media is. They showed up and had him wear his PPE, personal protective equipment that he never wore. They told him the answers they were looking for. The BBC, this is what we'd like you to say. It's very dangerous, this virus. Lots of people are going to die. You're probably going to die. So you'll be doing your country a service if you'll just play along and say these things while you wear goggles and a mask and a, and a gown. Well, Martin Kolderf wasn't playing the game. And then cases. And I asked this PhD, who incidentally is the furthest thing from, from a Trump head. He's a European socialist, Martin Kolderf is. 
We're working on that with him. That'll come around. I asked him about cases. I'm of the position with my audience, Martin, that the word cases is an empty scare word. And I liken it this way. If I were to say that there have been 200,000 mechanical incidents with the 737 airplane this month, you probably wouldn't fly one. And if I said, but 90, and you'll get the number I'm using here, um, 99.73 or 87% of these were the toilets, the speakers in the stereos that didn't involve anything safety oriented, you would reconsider. And what does a case mean? I mean, what, what is a case? That's a great analogy. Uh, it used to be that a case was somebody who was sick. And if you are sick of COVID-19 and you have to go to the hospital, then you're a case. Uh, but defining cases as somebody who is asymptomatic and has a positive PCR test uh, doesn't make any sense uh, for me. And uh, I've talked to uh, uh, physician colleagues and it doesn't make sense to them. If everything is a case, nothing is a case. And then the injections came. And when people began dying of the injections, they changed the playing field. Oh, you're not fully vaccinated until a certain point. Well, but I've had two shots, right. But you're not fully vaccinated until we say so. And when the deaths started to come with... Great predictability, people dying more often who'd been injected than not injected. They stopped testing. Remember all the, everybody gets tested the second you walk into a hospital, they test you. Remember that? No, not anymore. We've stopped testing. Then they stopped reporting in deaths whether people were injected or not. Whoops. Now the CDC is laundering deaths, recategorizing them. You know what the top cause of death in the UK is? Unknown. In a minute, you're going to hear from John Ohlone. And we'll run the entire interview uninterrupted because it's vitally important for me that you hear the whole thing just that way. On this milestone day, as we look at 5 million total downloads, less than a year after we started this, I do remember the, the, the time that my friends at Major Creative, Major Creative Marketing, my friends at Major Creative Marketing in Seattle, my friend Jerry, who I've worked with for a decade, called me and said, hey, Todd, uh, pretty cool deal. We've got a great big company that wants to, uh, wants to meet the audience. And he told me about soda weight loss. And as you know, I've taken off 150 pounds of unwanted fat. <laughs> in fact, you know what's funny? I did a workout this, I, got, I didn't even think of this. I did a workout this weekend 
where I ran 400 meters on this, this uh, treadmill that has no engine on it. So you are the engine. I ran 400 meters, jumped off and did four sandbag lifts. So you lift this sandbag from the floor and uh, hike it with your hips over your shoulder and four reps of that four rounds. So it's a, it's a total of a mile run and 16 of those things. That bag is stinking heavy. I hate that bag. In fact, I was telling my friend, my coach, I wrote in my notes, I hate that bag. I hate that. I, dear Lord in heaven, I used to carry that around in my body. That just occurred to me. That's insanity. Wow. <laughs> okay. So I can tell you 150 pounds of fat, that's stinking heavy. So Sherry called me, said, so to weight loss. And I said, okay, if it's, if it's weight loss, I got to look into this very carefully because I know which protocols work and which don't. I've taken off 150 pounds of unwanted fat. I read about the protocols, solid. I took a call with one of the founding doctors, solid. Then I looked at the reviews, solid. Then went the investigation of people who've used this and taken off 150 pounds or the bothersome, 40. Then I did my super secret, super shopper phone call. Then I said, yes. My wife's been through the program. I've got a loved one on the program. There's countless podcast family members in the program. People I know personally who also listen to the, uh, the podcast I get to hang out with. They've been on the program. It's sodaweightloss.com. It stands for state of the art. S-O-T-A weightloss.com. S-O-T-A weightloss.com. so excited uh, to welcome to the program a gentleman who is I think putting career at risk and much at risk and doing it out of love um, he runs MK Family Funeral Services uh, in England John O'Looney joins us John uh, so happy to have you here God bless you for doing what you're doing and welcome um, to be honest with you uh, one of the reasons that I kind of do this job it's more of a service to the living than it is those that are passed and I care very much about people and so it's not an optional thing for me speaking out. I have to do it because I see something terrible happening. Uh, and this is murder. It's mass murder. Uh, and these people are well aware of what's going on. I know because I've sat opposite them um, in, in meetings in Westminster. I sat with Sir Graham Brady. He knew. He knew. So I have to speak out. I've got no choice. And, uh, you know, I'm of the very same opinion that it's impossible to not know uh, what these COVID injections are doing to people. And let's let's bring my audience up to date, because I think a lot of them know who you are and what you've done and what you discovered. But um, I think you, know, you deal with people at that moment of of, of death and, and afterwards and, and take such kind, you know, and, and professional care bodies um, that it was through the process of embalming, I believe. Was that where you first drew your concern or was it before then? No, so it was before then. So for yeah. me, COVID first began back in 2019, really, in November. The end of November, I had a family come to see me who'd lost a loved one in the neighbouring borough of Northampton, um, probably about 15 miles away. But we cover, you know, kind of a 20, 30-mile radius or whatever. And they complained. One thing that stuck in my mind was they complained that the hospital wouldn't let them see their loved one. Now, this is really unusual. So all, as a society, we're very good at getting people to die in hospitals. Um, if I had 10 people in my care that had died in hospital, uh, 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 sorry, if I had 10 people in my care, eight of them would have died in a hospital environment. One would have died at home under the care of a district nurse visiting. 
and one would be in a care home. That's the kind of regular ratio, you know. So, so um, the vast majority of, of collections we do of deceased are from hospitals. Uh, and they have, uh, where the mortuary is in a hospital, you'll usually know, because if you drive around the hospital, somewhere on the site you'll see a really tall chimney, incinerator chimney, and that's where they get rid of the biological waste, um, amputated limbs, that kind of thing, you know. And you know the mortuary is very close to the chimney. So anyway, uh, attached to these mortuaries are viewing rooms. Uh, and in these viewing rooms, the idea being is if you lose someone in the hospital um, and you've seen them suffering on the ward, they take them down to the mortuary and there's a viewing room there. You can spend time in the chapel of rest and they wouldn't let this family see their loved one. So I kind of said to them, you know, don't worry. I'll, one of the things I'm very keen on is picking people up very quickly because they're in the best condition then. And uh, as we kind of alluded to earlier, it's a service to the living really. So if you pick people up in good condition, when you come into your chapel and my chapel, and you see your mom, she looks at her best. You know, I never knew these people's loved one. They wouldn't want them to see them at anything but their best. So we always move quickly. We don't work on an industrial scale. I probably do two, three, four funerals a week. Um, and that's enough. I can earn a living doing that. And I, you know, I don't want to become uh, an, an empire. Um, I just want to look after people. So yeah. that's what, that's what we've been doing. So I went to the hospital and, and kind of collected this, this disease. And I happened to mention why I was there, you know, the family said you wouldn't let them see their loved one. Why was that? And he uh, motioned me over to the viewing room and he opened the door for the viewing room. Uh, and there's a big inflatable like pandemic tent in there. It was silver and black. Uh, and I kind of said, well, what's that for? And he, he said, well, we've been told there's something very nasty coming. He didn't mention the word COVID, I'd hasten to add. That word wasn't used. Um, so they obviously weren't told about that or were perhaps, I don't know, perhaps they were told not to mention it. But they said um, there's something nasty coming. We've been told this is why, because the viewing room that we use for that purpose is now full of this pandemic tent so the uh i took this deceased away and i'd hasten to add this person wasn't in that pandemic tent so business as usual and in 2020 the um the news broke in early 2020 and they were showing us pictures of people falling over on streets in china uh, and um, telling us how deadly this pandemic would, would be and i was worried i'll be honest you know um i'm 54 years old i'm an ex-smoker you know i'm probably a couple of stone overweight um, as it creeps on when you get your mid fifties and I'm death bound most of the time talking to people and looking after people, you know, it's not a real cardiovascular job, but, um, I was worried and, uh, the phone started ringing various things and, uh, but the death rate wasn't going up. What they were doing was, so I had a guy ring up and he, he this was about March time, about 12 weeks in. And he said to me, um, my name's John. He said, I work for a pandemic resilience team sponsored by the government. He said, and my job is to call all of the funeral directors in the my area, whatever that area be. And he said, we're going to call you every Monday and we need to ask you questions to collate the numbers for the pandemic response effort. And, you know, I was happy to do that. Why would you not want to furnish, you know, because you feel like you're doing your bit kind of thing. And um, he would ask me, uh, for example, how many deceased I could hold in my facility, you know. And this was at the time when they were saying, oh, we're going to open the ice rink up and they're going to fill it full of bodies and that's the overflow and, you know, raising that hysteria level. And um, I would tell him and he would say, how many have you picked up and from where and how many are COVID? And I would start telling him and almost straight away he started steering me. And by that, I mean, the conversation would go much like this. I would tell him that I'd picked up a gentleman from a care home. 
he'd, uh, I'd spoken to the family um, to get the history. There was no doctor present, no COVID test present. This guy had been in that care home for four years with onset dementia. He died in the classic fetal position in bed. Um, it wasn't a COVID death. This guy would insist down the phone that was a COVID death. And, and I kind of, oh, well, why is that? I've just told you. And I've took the effort to actually look into it to give you the accurate numbers, you know, um, and made effort and talked to the care home, talked to the family. There's no, uh, he, he said, well, there was one guy that died in there. We've been instructed because COVID is in there. Everyone is labeled with COVID. And that happened throughout 2020. Um, uh, heart attack, a- anyone they possibly could. In fact, all the ambulance crews were told and instructed everyone gets on the ambulances, COVID positive, COVID positive, COVID. And uh, it, it was just lies, utter lies. These people weren't COVID. There were COVID deaths, we were told, were COVID. We were picking up from the hospital. But um, the, the massive effort they made to relabel as many as they possibly could. Now, I'd hasten to add there's a regular death rate, uh, um, historically, as a funeral director. You see it every year. It's seasonal work. So, you know, winters are generally big, busier than the summer. Um, but there was no increase in death rate at all. And I couldn't understand why. And then I took a call from um, the BBC, the local BBC regional news, who asked me as a funeral director if they could come and do an interview. And this was about 12 weeks into COVID. So I kind of, yeah, fine, you know, I'm happy to help, whatever I can do. And um, we were all worried, you know, we were getting masks um, sorted out and and aprons. And, you know, there was a big panic, weren't there, for protective equipment, you know, PPR. And um, everyone was buying it, panicking. So we were struggling to get it. And uh, I was washing and dressing all these people and wondering when I was going to get sick. And I never got sick and I couldn't understand why, you know, because many of these people, I was picking them up and they were still warm, but I wasn't getting sick. Nobody else was washing and dressing them. They were just taking coffins and body bags from the hospitals. But I couldn't bring myself to do it because these are people who lost their mum over a Zoom call, you know. Um, How can you treat people like that? How can you treat people like that, even if they had a deadly pandemic? You know, we're there to be caring for each other. And these people just weren't, you know. So um, the BBC, anyway, they arranged to come in and do an interview and they got me to dress up in PPE. And it's really strange because I've done many interviews. I've never done an, an interview before COVID, really, that I could ever remember doing. And this interview is very strange on reflection. At the time, it was the first one I'd ever done. And they spent about 40 minutes telling me the questions they were going to ask me and briefing me word for word for the exact answer. And they got me to dress up in PPE and put a mask on and and goggles and yeah, stuff that I wouldn't normally have worn. And I felt a little bit uncomfortable, but I kind of, you know, you, okay, that's what you want me to do. And, you know, this is really dangerous. And, and, you know, it was very early in the, in the game and um, on reflection, I bitterly regret it because all I did was they used me to push the hysteria and the propaganda, you know, so, so that came and went, uh, and um, then I had a family come to me in March time, uh, and they'd lost a little girl of six, uh, and um, she died from cancer, uh, and they wanted to spend time with their little girl, and I kind of thought, uh, and this was at a time, as I said, you know, nobody was dressing anyone. They were just um, uh, body bags, sealed body bags, you know, maybe laying the clothes on top if you're lucky, and, uh, and I kind of dressed this little girl for them, and then thought, well, I'm going to do it for everyone. I don't care. And that's what I've done um, all the way through. And, and uh, I wasn't getting sick and I wasn't dying. And I couldn't believe how lucky I was because, you know, 
they're busy showing us, you know, you can't go into hospital, you can't travel, it's too dangerous to see family. And here I am picking these people up and taking them out of the body bags uh, and washing them down and drying them. And I'd never wore a mask because I can't work in a mask. You know, uh, I'm a bit asthmatic and ex-smoker and I couldn't, yeah. and I kept expecting to, to die. And uh, um, it wasn't happening. Oh. So, so um, there, there was that. And then um, there was a brief period in <clears throat> March and April 2020 where Matt Hancock, who was a scumbag who was in government um, in, in the UK, transferred a lot of elderly patients uh, from the hospital environment to the care homes. And he announced that there'd be loads of deaths from COVID of these people. And I remember thinking when he announced it, how does he know that? How does he know all of these people are suddenly going to die exclusively in the care home environment? That to me, I found was disturbing because to my mind, if a, vac- uh, if a virus is out there, it's in the community, it's everywhere. It doesn't target specific places, you know? Yeah. Uh, and lo and behold, as if by magic, um, the phone started ringing and it was almost exclusively care homes, you know? So, so uh, as I alluded to earlier, if I pick up 10 deceased, eight of them are from hospital, one is a care home, one is a residential address. But I had three week period between March and April of 2020. It was all care homes exclusively. There mm-hmm. were, you know, uh, I never had a night's sleep undisturbed for nearly three weeks and it was all care homes. And that's really, really, it's not normal. That's yeah. never, ever happened. And uh, as a, small funeral director um, to give you a little bit of my background so I've been a funeral director for 15 years 10 of those were spent working for an industry leader co-optive funeral care and um, the first five years was good the second five years wasn't so good because the co-optive bank collapsed and the money men came in to siphon off as much money as they could out of people and of the business to try and pop up the toxic debt that the bank had accrued you know so, so I then set up on my own five years ago. So I've got a pretty good idea of what is normal and what isn't normal and, and patterns. And and, um, and I was just starting to see a more and more disturbing pattern, you know, where it wasn't what we were being told. Um, uh, and then um, Christmas came, 2021, and they were saying about, um, you, you know, oh, this is still deadly. It's still, we're going to come up with a cure soon. We're going to have a vaccine soon. And I kind of, I don't know. Um, I kind of describe it very much like, you know, when you'd be sitting in traffic and you're stationary and you kind of get that feeling that someone's looking at you and you turn around and you catch them looking yeah, and they turn up that sixth sense that kind of told me, just don't take it, sit back and, and see what happens. And I, I kind of said to a few people, they widely advertised here that they were going to start vaccinating in um, January of 2021. And I kind of said to a few people openly and even did a Facebook post saying, you know, I'm really worried that when this vaccine rolls out, the death rate's going to soar. We're going to see a pandemic death rate. And everyone laughed at me, you know, and they said, oh, you're tinfoil out wearing pool, you know. Right. And literally the, mo- the moment needles went in arms, the death rate went through the roof. And it was, I'd estimate about 300% what it should be. Oh. It was all of the people, it was all of the people that were being vaccinated. Um, a large swathe of them were falling over. Sometimes an hour, an hour after being injected, they were dying. Um, and I was speaking to the families and, and they were all being labelled with COVID and they never had COVID. They just died after being vaccinated. And, and a lot of the families were coming into me very angry because they were frightened that I wouldn't dress their mum or dad because they were labelled with COVID. And I said, look, don't worry, I wouldn't care if they had COVID or not. I still would treat them like I would my own mum, you know? 
uh, and that's what I was doing. And that went on that time for about 12 weeks. And then it just evaporated, almost like somebody had run out of a batch, you know, uh, and um, then they, they kept moving the goalposts. And now we're going to, it's only the most vulnerable. Uh, it started off here in the UK, 15 days to save the NHS, and they locked everyone up. And then it was, oh, we're just going to do the most vulnerable, you know, only the people in care homes, and they all died. And then um, we're just going to do the 60s and then the 50s and then the 40s. The third, we're actually in the 20s. You can't work. You can't travel. You can't see your mum. Your mum's really vulnerable. You've got to protect her. And it just they kept moving the goalposts, and I could see it. And we were getting people coming in, 23-year-olds, 25-year-olds, 28-year-olds. And they weren't COVID deaths. These are sudden heart attacks. Um, so so it, it got to... Uh, uh, kind of September of 2021 and I got invited to a meeting. I got a phone call. I took a phone call from a retired police officer and I'd been very vocal warning people, you know, and saying don't take them because I'm seeing lots of people fall over. And I've been saying this for the last couple of years now. You know, many of your people would know. Um, I, and, uh, you know, they say, oh, you're really brave. I'm not brave. I just, why would, you know, it'd be like what's standing there watching a blind man cross the road. Would you get your camera out and film it? Or would you right. actually go and take his arm and and, and save this, this guy, you know, and that's what it feels like to me. It's like, I'm, I'm in a privileged position to see it from the cold face. You know, I've put more kids in coffins under 40 in the last 18 months than I've the previous 10 years, even working for a big funeral provider. So I know, I know what I'm seeing. And in fact, I had an email from, and a phone call from a guy this morning from, uh, New Zealand funeral director who's just started speaking out. Um, you know, so, so I think they're all now, finally realising that, do you know what, crazy John who put his ass on the line was actually right and they foresee what the future holds for them and it's death and misery for everyone unless we wake up and tackle it now and stop it yeah. now. You yeah. know, um, John, uh, I, well, I, we've got that. I started speaking out uh, th three days after the lockdowns here um, it, because it was clear to me the lockdowns were politically motivated. They were picking and choosing. And control. Right. So, and I looked at the leverage they were using and, and who was being rewarded in the lockdowns. Um, and the death rate never made sense to me. And nah. working in media, I was stunned by the coordination of the media, the coordination of the messaging. And very quickly, I realized that this is, this is you know, a complete swindle. For me, what's so astonishing is when the design of the injections came out, I'm not a doctor. I, I mean, yeah, I spent a lot of time in high tech and so I can read high tech documents and, and consume things like that and, and understand them to a degree. But I looked at design of the injections and said, so we're going to create something that, that is a gene sequencing device that will hijack the body's genes and have it create a cytotoxic element called the spike protein. How does that not lead to the derangement of the immune system? How does this not cause the body to want to attack the body? So I saw that, I began to see the patterns like you, I saw the strong arm tactics. I saw ads in the UK um, after the injections came out, kids have strokes too, know the signs. They don't, no, they don't. And they, no, don't. they don't, and they don't. And this yeah, is, I, this is do what know, I, Do you know how many kids um, I've looked after that have had COVID? None. Yeah. Not what, not a single one, yeah. neither of any of my colleagues. I've been a funeral director for 15 years. I've never once looked after a child that's had a stroke or a heart attack. Does it happen? Yes, on very extremely rare natural occasions. Um, million to one chance. Certainly so rare that in 15 years, I've never seen it. 
Um, they don't. They're normalizing it. They're busy normalizing it so that when it happens, you expect it. Um, so I got invited to a meeting in yeah. uh, September after being really vocal throughout 2021, September of last year. Um, and in this meeting, um, it was widely reported as uh, a meeting of anti-vaxxers, you know. And let me tell you about who was at that meeting. The, the, the group of anti-vaxxers consisted of Dr. Mike Yeadon, the former CEO of Pfizer, Dr. Um, Tess Laurie, Dr. Sukarit Bhakti, Dr. Stephen Frost, um, Professor Dolores Cahill. You know, these are not a group of conspiracy theorists. These are people, uh, Peter McCulloch. You know, the, these are people who have actually built very prestigious and eminent careers and advised governments on the back of vaccines. Yep. So, so um, you know, so we all had 10 minutes with a guy called Sir Graham Brady. Now, Sir Graham is the commissioner of the 1922 committee. He's a very, he's the most powerful politician in the UK. He basically said that he was above his pay grade. He was powerless to do anything and he would do what he could, but he couldn't promise anything and nothing's happened. You know, they've gone on to poison children. So I, we all had 10 minutes in our respective fields, me as an undertaker, and I told him exactly what I thought uh, and what was happening, you know, and the death in these youngsters. And his face was ashen. He knew. He knew that what we were saying was true because his body language betrayed it. You know, he was shaken. He was visibly shaken. The meeting was supposed to run from 2 o'clock to half past 3 in Westminster, and it was number one birdcage walk. It was a Tuesday, the 21st of September. It was a... Tuesday afternoon, it was due to run from two o'clock to half three. He was there to about four o'clock purely because of the gravity of what was said. Now, I knew what I was going to say. That was no surprise to me. But I had to sit and listen to what the, the, the other people there, the real experts, told us was happening and would happen. Now, there were a couple of things that really shook me to my core. One is that seven in every 10 children that are vaccinated, if they don't die from myocardia, they'll be sterilized as a recognized side effect. And, and that was openly acknowledged in that meeting. That was confirmed um, by people like Dr. Tess Laurie. Um, and we're seeing that now, aren't we? Uh, with the miscarriage rate in vaccinated mothers, for example, in Australia, there's a very famous doctor called Dr. Luke McLinden. He was a um, fertility expert at the Mater Hospital. I'm a strong believer in checking these things out. I've actually spoke to Mr. Uh, Dr. McLinden and verified him and he's confirmed what he said to be true. So the regular miscarriage rate in, in women um, carrying children pre-COVID vaccine was between 5 and 14% and it peaked occasionally at 16%. And I would suggest it's probably environmental um, and depending on what other crap they're putting in the environment around us. Do you know what the miscarriage rate is in vaccinated mothers in Australia, in the, in the area that this guy was working at the current time. I'm going to guess 30%. 74%. 74%. So, yeah, yeah. So, so he raised the alarm and announced these figures. Now, what did his bosses, what did the Australian government do? Did they thank him for his work and raising this terrible concern and let's look at how we can address this? And no, they sacked him. They sacked him. His name is Dr. Luke McLindon. So M-C-L-I-N-D-O-N. Google him. It's there. It's there in black and white. There are numerous reports of him telling 74% of vaccinated mothers are losing their ch child stillbirth, you know. Um, and uh, I couldn't understand why the phone wasn't ringing because we don't charge anything to look after any child under 18, you know. I won't profit from the death of a child 
is that simple. You know, there are people that will. Um, I'm not one of them. Um, yeah. So when a family ring, ring me and they've lost a child, I'll take the child. My professional services I provide for nothing. I'll even buy a coffin out of my own pocket because I won't. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to, pro- you know, I make enough money without screwing people that I can afford to absorb four or five, half a dozen funerals a year. Um, when I worked at the car, maybe half a dozen babies a year. Um, we've seen more than that now on the boards at the crematorium. But more interestingly, the info boards at the crematorium in the waiting room, uh, they show the name of the deceased, the time of the service, uh, and the person that's taking care of that, the arranging funeral director, and it's all the hospitals now. So the hospitals are transporting babies directly from the hospital to the crematorium, bypassing the funeral director. Um, so we oh. I kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that keeps it quiet then, doesn't it? That keeps it out of, uh, out of the loop. That keeps us out of the loop. So what's happening is we spoke to a guy who works there at the crematorium, and he told us that vans come from the hospital with six and eight babies at a time sometimes. Um, yeah. Now, numbers that I've never, never heard of. And I couldn't understand why the phone wasn't ringing, you know, because we used to do two, three, four a year, maybe. Um, and But we're seeing a massive increase. Dr. Luke McClendon's confirming it. There's another a funeral director called Wesley. So if you do a search, a Google search for British Undertaker Wesley and baby deaths. So Undertaker Wesley at baby deaths, you'll see. There's a guy called Wesley, another funeral director. I've spoken to him personally. I know him. He's a funeral director. He is. Yeah. Uh, and um, he's reporting loads and loads of baby deaths. And I couldn't understand. Well, where are they going then? Why aren't the phone ringing? Are we doing something wrong? Or, you know, it's not. It's because they're now going straight to the crematorium. So that that, that leads me to this question, John, because um, yeah, I, I recall now uh, your your early statements about this and, and your early statements in the observation and the death rate. And, and <clears throat> I've become so focused on the the deaths caused by these injections and the mechanism for this and i saw mm. a video interview with you where you displayed um this stuff drawn from people's arteries that yeah that are yeah called so this the blood um, clots let me let me yeah oh uh, my goodness this yeah yeah this is that so right. this came from a 30 year old male so let me um i kind of digress a little bit yeah. here but we are seeing record numbers of thrombosis deaths in young people too young, 23, 28, 20, 20, 30s and 40s, in numbers I've never, ever seen before. Um, there's a guy uh, who's uh, an American embalmer and a real gentleman um, by the name of Richard Hirschman. Richard Hirschman, he's based in Alabama in the U.S., and he's a trade embalmer. So his job, I employ my own full-time embalmer here. Um He's a trade embalmer, so he subcontracts to all of the funeral homes locally, and he does a great number of embalmers, around a 1,000 a year, I believe. He'll confirm the number. If you reach out to Richard, um, and I'm happy to give you his email address, he'll talk to you because he's very vocal. Now, he released a video some months ago detailing what he was finding as he was embalming vaccine recipients who died who had been given post-mortems so let me explain so that your guys can understand. So when we do um, embalming on people, embalming is a process where we use the arterial system to connect an, uh, a pump that pumps formaldehyde around the body to preserve the body, and the fluid is also pink in colour. And the idea of that is, it, you know, when you die, your circulation starts, it puts colour back in you, mm-hmm. preserves you, stops you deteriorating, nature taking its course, and it's 
a much nicer experience for people coming out to see you, you know, in a chapel yeah. of rest. So the way it works is we undo the collars, we cut into the carotid artery, which is the main artery and one of the main arteries in the neck. We cut the artery halfway through, the, the, the nozzle on the pump, and I, I'm kind of trying to explain so you get the, the understanding yeah. of how it works. Goes into one half of the vein, uh, the artery, sorry. The top half is tied off. We then pump formaldehyde around the body. That, uh, the extremities, you can see the fluid going down and it goes pink. So you know you've got fluid around the body. Then you turn the pump the other way and it flushes the top of the head. Okay. You know? So that, that's how that's been happening. So for the last 18 months, we've noticed that we've been struggling to embalm people uh, and we couldn't understand why. We thought perhaps the pump might need servicing. But it transpires. It's because these people are blocked up. Now, um, yeah, so the way that works is, is there are two types of embalming. There's a, um, a, an embalming and then there's a, um, a post-mortem embalm. Now, because we use the arterial system, once someone's had a post-mortem, the process means that they cut them up the abdomen and take all their organs out. They take blocks and slides and then they put the organs in a bag, a plastic bag, and put it back in the cavity and sew the cavity up. Now, obviously, during that process, the arterial system that feeds the blood supply to and from these organs is severed everywhere. It's, it's been cut as they pulled these organs out. So you have to, when someone comes in that's had a post-mortem, you undo the stitching, you take the bag of uh, giblets out, for want of a better word, yeah. um, and then you manually target the severed arteries with the pump, and you're poking the pump down the top of these arteries. Now, we had a young boy in, um, and I knew what I'd find because he was 30 and he died suddenly. So what we have to do is we have to wait for the planets to align, the circumstances to align where we get a young death yep. we, uh, that they then give a post-mortem to because they're a little bit reluctant to do post-mortems now. They're, a bit, they're being a bit cagey. You know, they don't want to draw attention to this. And then the family asks us to embalm as well. So there's three different circumstances that the planets have to align. So this young boy, he died suddenly, aged thirty, no comorbidities. He was in good nick, bless him, uh, and um, he'd um, passed away suddenly. The coroner was forced to do a post mortem because he was found dead at home at the age of thirty. Um, the family then asked us to embalm him, so we took that the, the, his bits and pieces out and started embalming process. And as we looked in his arteries to put the pump nozzle in. We can't get the nozzle in there because of the, he's, all his arteries are all blocked up. So my embalmer gets a pair of tweezers and he pulls at this obstruction and he pulls and he pulls. And to give you an idea, so the, I'm going to stand up trying to, to illustrate, but the top of the leg there, there's a, a, an artery that runs down the leg called the ephemeral artery. And that's accessible from the cavity. Now that artery from the top of your, your, your groin area, to the, your ankle, it's probably two, three feet in the taller person, you know. You could pull that clot, and it's not a clot. It comes out in one piece. It's bright white, and it resembles very much like calamari. It's stretchy. It's elastic. It's extremely tough, and it forms the exact cast of the artery. So branches and all. You know, like if you see, um, the way I would describe it, have you ever seen a YouTube video where they've taken an aluminium cast of an ant nest? or a termite yes. mound, where they, put, they pour it in and then they dig it and there's a perfect branch, like a tree, about, and it's like that. And it, yeah. it, this stuff grows inside the arteries in the veins of this person and slowly blocks until it kills them. And that's what's happening. That's why we're seeing record numbers of athletes, 
footballers um, falling over and dying suddenly from alleged cardio issues. This is why we're seeing record mar- levels of myocardia because the body is reacting with these poisons they're putting in people, this, they're labeling medicines, and it's growing this stuff inside them. So outwardly, it appears like a natural death, but in unnatural ages and in unnatural quantities. That's what we're seeing. So to give you an idea, if I open up 10 people, right, and I look at 10 people's arteries, some people will have an artery like my little finger, really big. We call these cow arteries because they're huge, you know. Yeah. They must have had really low blood pressure in life and be very blessed. And uh, and other people will have um, like a straw, really thin, and yeah. everything in between. Now, if you think about it logically, if you have 10 children, all the, exactly the same age, born on the same day, they're all going to grow at different rates. Some grow tall, some grow fat, some grow thin, some are muscular, some are skinny. So people are producing this white stuff inside them. If the planets align and they have particularly narrow arteries and they grow this white stuff inside those arteries quickly, they're the ones that are falling over first. And these are the players that we're seeing dying first. Uh, it's because they've got perhaps a little bit narrower than average arteries and they grow this white stuff particularly quickly. Um, and this is what's happening. And this young lad, I mean, we pulled um, this out of him. I don't know if you can see it yeah. properly. It's, it's black, blackened slightly because it's, um, soaked in formaldehyde and that tends to blacken it, but it's yeah. bright white, a very elastic. Um, this is a fraction of what came out of him. I tell you, there was, I mean, one piece we pulled out was two and a half feet long from one of his ephemeral arteries and it came out in one piece. A clot, you couldn't do that. You'd pick it up with a pair of twins and pull it bits, you know, and you John, can wash it down a plug hole. I read a study on this. It's the first one I've seen that talks about the mechanism that would cause this. And yeah. what they've discovered is it appears to be that the um, the spike proteins and the and and a combination of that and the lipid nanoparticles uh, are causing a misfolding of the hemoglobin, uh, so that the hemoglobin is doubling and tripling up when it shouldn't do that, and it ends up in this so, stuff that so, you described as like calamari. Yeah. So why are they not acknowledging that then and raising the alarm when right. people like me and doctors and scientists talk about it? That for me is more chilling than the actual events because yes. it tells you that it's a deliberate act. It, it, it can't be at this point anything but deliberate when all yeah, the data I, I shows can tell you, the excess. Sir Graham Space, he said it all. It's a Graham Space, he said it all. I sat from as close as here to the monitor. Yeah. His face said it all. My job is to, is to um, read and look after people, and I'm different things to different people, you know. Um, I know Sir Graham knew. He knew. He, he admitted it was above his pay grade. Well, as I'm watching this on our side, and this is what's so fascinating to me, is people, despite the efforts to silence, people still hear this. Um, you yeah. got through. I've gotten through the censors. Uh, I was told yeah. in radio, um, hey, you can't go around questioning the so-called vaccines the way you're doing. And that was a, that mm. was a hard line for me. I said, no, no, if you, if you try to force that, I'll quit. And I did, yeah. I did go to podcast only. So I, but there's a lot of reasons for that. It wasn't because of that. Um, John, mm. what percentage of your countrymen and women at this point uh, are, do you think aware of what has been done to them? It's a growing number. So I would say um, we have around 65 million here, 20 million of those have not had a single vaccine. Yep. Um, a, a percentage have had one or two, um, and there are some. Uh, and, and the danger is what's happening now is these people are having vaccine after vaccine, so they're getting sick. 
as their immune system is decimated. They are then told it's COVID, so they're clamoring to get more medicine. Then they're getting sicker. And and it's just so do, do do you understand? So I totally they've been do. very careful, haven't they? Where where they've said it won't stop you catching it, it won't stop you getting it, it will stop you getting it bad. So you've got people that are more or less dying constantly and they're believing, Oh, just imagine what it'd have been like if I hadn't had the vaccine. They're totally invested and they won't even believe a funeral director. I mean, if you won't believe a funeral director right. telling you, you well, know, what about, what do people think that I've got to gain? You know, did right. I ask you for any money? I don't want anything. I don't, this is not fame or accolade that I want. I'd much rather have my old life back, you know, but I see something terrible going on. I sat in front of Sir Graham and watched his face. He knew, he knew. The whole room knows that he knew. Mark Sexton knows. Del- Dolores Cahill knows. Tess Laurie knows. Dr. Stephen Frost knows. I have doctors coming here constantly doing cremation paperwork and they're terrified. They're terrified because they know that very slowly, the government is saying, well, your medical healthcare professional has your record. They're responsible for your healthcare. They're going to blame them. They're going to blame them. And, and in Pakistan now, we see medics and vaccine um, staff being killed because these people are waking up and they're in murderous rages. We're seeing it, you know, as people realize. And they will all be touched by it. I mean, they said to us, when you think uh, people of the caliber of uh, Mike Eden, Dr. Mike Eden, the CEO of Pfizer was there. And he said, anyone who's had this jab and has got the one that damages the immune system, they've got between two and five years. That's it. There is no cure. There is no cure because it reprograms your DNA. Right. Now, there are, are doctors coming out with protocols that we hope will help. But because they tried to tie down the ingredients to this, I mean, the adverse reactions to this, Pfizer wanted to tie up for 75 years. Right. right. Why, would, why would anyone normal do that? Why would they do that? Has well, anybody who's actually had these vaccines looked at that adverse event? There's over a thousand um, uh, adverse reactions from cancer, myocardia. You know, how can people be so gullible? I just, you know, and I, I kind of thought myself, you know, well, if I hadn't been a funeral director, would I have taken it? Maybe I would have done. Maybe I would have done. Well, you know, well, but I've been very, um, I've been very, very vocal about um, seeing what I find because I value everyone. You know, yeah. I don't want people to die. I don't want kids to die. Why would I want kids? Why would I say nothing? There, there that is that would make me complicit. Th- th- this has been so global, and this is the other part of this that is so utterly breathtaking to me. Um, stay home, stay safe was global. You mentioned the propaganda videos out of China that people falling over at the bus stop. Um, two weeks to flatten the curve. Yours was two weeks to save the NIH. Um, then we- Yeah, yeah, national health service, right. yeah. But now we know because Fauci has admitted um, that, oh yeah, I knew the lockdowns were causing harm. That I knew lockdowns were causing harm. Um, I knew that these injections weren't going to work, says Debbie Burks, Deborah Burks, a doctor, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah, I know this. They weren't going to stop infection or transmission. I knew it wasn't going to be two weeks. There's a book coming out now. Mm-hmm. A, a senior White House official was spokes or a, a spokesperson within the White House said that Fauci mocked people for wearing masks. This is coming out. Yeah, of course they did. Right. Yeah, and, of course and, they did. Th- yeah. This is these people. I, I can tell you now, they should be locked up. Fauci should never ever see daylight again. And I would happily lock him up and throw away the key and, yeah. and feed him pancakes under the door. He would never see daylight again. And I, my hope is that I live to see that day because he is the personification of pure evil. This man, um, I hope God forgives him because I never will. I never will. And um, 
I can't believe this man is still walking and breathing, to be honest with you. After what he's done, the evil that he's done to people's kids and families, um, he should never, ever be forgiven. Uh, and more than that, you know, whoever his paymasters are, they should all be tracked down. Every one of them, every one of them sat around that table like cowards in the shadows. Um, they should be thoroughly ashamed of themselves. But I don't even think they're human. I mean, the government here has, it was very interesting. I watched uh, uh, an interview a little while ago. One of the former health ministers uh, of, <laughs> how laughable, the former health ministers of England, it was a woman, um, um, not a noteworthy woman particularly, but I was listening to what she said. And she was reiterating that the government um, were considering mandating and forced vaccinating, but the behavioural team felt yeah. that it was unreasonable to do that. Now, they have a behavioural team because they don't understand how we would react to legislation. They, that yeah. tells me perhaps they're not human. How can you not understand how people react but to the point you need a behavioral John, team. Over here, there was a massive uh, study that the government and uh, Big Pharma paid for through Harvard University of 45,000 mm. people to figure out how to psyop them. So the pressure campaigns, there's uh, you know fear of loss, there's opportunity for gain. They turn these then into personas. Um, the mother who wants to protect the kids, the dad who wants to protect yeah, the parents. Oh, and, yeah, and, and I've it, heard it. These people have come through and said, I didn't even want it. They told me I was protecting my mum. Right. And, protecting and, my nan. And this know? was global. But let me, let me ask you this, because over here, um, the CDC, quote, scientists – they get a percentage of monies from patents. Of course they that, do. And does that happen there too? Do the NIH doctors yeah, do they participate so in that? They're all benefiting. So um, medics, if they get managed to persuade someone they needed ventilation, get them on ventilation, there's a payment. If every positive COVID test they got, there's a, a payment. Every COVID death they got, there's a payment. And they're big payments as well. You know, when you're like, what don't people see and what these people have done? I mean, I've had doctors and nurses reach out to me in numbers. You wouldn't believe. You wouldn't believe. Yeah. Dozens and dozens. Doctors crying, standing, crying down the phone. You, the, the, uh, I can tell you, the GMC over here is finished, utterly finished in, in all but name. It's just a mafia that these doctors have to be part of in order to be able to practice. And I long for the day that we can form a parallel body of doctors that we can all go because these people are still out there that are sick and need your services. If we could get to a situation where we could boycott and, and uh, see a mass exodus of doctors from the GMC into um, uh, just onto a register where doctors could practice, you know, uh, uh, and the GMC is finished. Honestly, um, they should be disgusted with themselves. The way they've behaved is absolutely appalling. It's no better than um, Dr. Mengele, in uh, World War Two, you know, what they were doing. And it was openly acknowledged at that meeting in, in um, Westminster that it was an experiment. And it, that experiment is due to run until 2023. Do you know what? We're just approaching 2023 and now they're starting to backtrack, aren't they? Saying, oh, we're not going to mandate now. Now you didn't need your boosters now. And these people are utter scumbags. Well, I'll tell you what, John. Um, I'm a man, as you can see behind me, the, the cross of Christ that um, I, I have to forgive because the Lord has told me I have to forgive and um, seven times, 77 times. But I will tell you this, I can't speak for God. I can read his word. Um, he mm -hmm. is not going to be amused on judgment day. 
No, he's not. no. And when I, he I, sits I'm, with Fauci and he sits with your guys and the Lord says, tell me what you did to my children. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the, Lord, I, I, um, the, the Lord is anxious to forgive, but what's coming these guys away, I hope it happens here on earth. I hope we get a chance at justice. Um, there's a hunger for this. Well, I want his justice. But th these are, this justice. is, you said Mengele. Um, I don't think that's an inapt description because we're supposed to get in trouble when we talk about World War II and the times of Hitler. But watching mm -hmm. the PSYOP that began, that launched through society, that was started beforehand, um, the design for this was before they decided to talk about the virus, which was in the wild two years, uh, about yeah. two years before they began to talk about it. That's Look what, at the patents that have gone on these vaccines long before COVID right. was even announced. Right. Yeah, but most people, they come home from work, they want Netflix, TikTok, Facebook. They don't even think anymore. They're just tell live vision. They watch that box and they just believe everything that's spewed to them. And it, it breaks my heart. Um, because I put more and more kids in coffins uh, and more and more people who shouldn't be dying. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and some of them, I mean, there was a 28 year old girl. She died just 90 minutes after being vaccinated. So what happened to her? She went into hospital um, and she was a uh, minor procedure was coerced. So they start off by attacking you and saying how selfish you are. You're people right. like you keeping this alive. And, and also you're in hospital and it's really dangerous in here. There's loads of COVID. So she and reluctantly agreed to have it and died 90 minutes later in the bed. 28 years old, no comorbidities. She was in wonderful condition, bless her. Uh, and um, it's murder. It's murder. It's that plain and simple. Malfeasance in office. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, the, these new prisons they've built everywhere, I like to think it's for them. Because what they've done, <laughs> I, I just, I, 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 I've never been a deeply religious man. I, I, one thing I've learned over the last couple of years, I obviously, I come across... Um, religion quite a lot in during the course of my work uh, and people do you know they have faith and i've got the greatest respect for that and one thing i've learned over the last couple of years is there is a pure unadulterated evil on this earth and it's predominantly the ruling elite classes they have plundered humanity for a long time and um, wherever there is this polar this evil this pure evil there must be the polar opposite good and if there is a god and I suspect there is, that must be that God. What what point will he step in and stop these people plundering children and plundering humanity, his so, creation? John, I want to wrap this up because I want to share something with you. My brother, uh, when the Lord Jesus um, left the earth and he left us behind with the Holy Spirit, he turned to us. He said, all things are possible through me. And the world began to change with, with Christianity. Um, God is God is a, a God of freedom and responsibility. There's going to be responsibility for what these people have done. You, my friends, you may not know this, but in serving the truth, you're doing some work with God. And I bet you he's speaking to you, John, because the, I, this um, is, the Bible, the the Bible tells us these times would come, my friend. The Bible is very clear. You are living through something the Bible described almost to a T and what you just said about evil, that the God, God leaves people to their own devices and lets them rot in their own devices. The, the path is narrow and, and we, we can get there together. But I, I believe God's speaking to you, John. I, um, I, I think it's something, I mean, I'm 54 and, yeah. and I think it's a, a question we've often asked ourselves, you know, why are we here? What is the purpose? I know now why I'm here. And this is why. So I don't doubt um, 
that, that what I'm doing is what I'm destined to do. It upsets me to see the pain and suffering. Well, remember this, John, um, and, and this is, I don't mean to, to Bible thump, but the Lord Jesus decided to be tortured for an entire day, beaten, whipped, the skin torn from his back. You can read one day about what the Roman scourges did to people's back. They're, they're, often the ribs were exposed. And he chose to go through that to suffer for us um, so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for sin to pay a debt that we can't pay. Um, he is aware of suffering. He's felt it. And the Lord weeps. And, and the, 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 he will come back as a judge. We talk a lot about the, the caring and loving Jesus, and that is truly an aspect of him in his, in his grandeur. But, John, he's coming back as a judge. So I'm going to send you a book, my friend. Um, I'm going to send you a couple of books. I'm going to beg you to read them. One is from your dear C.S. Lewis, um, but I'm going to ask you to read another book first. It's uh, a book on intelligent design called Signature in the Cell. I'm going to ask you to read that, and then I want you to read Mere Christianity. And, and, and I want to talk again about that. Um, and we have to wrap this up. You've been so kind with your time. I can't thank you enough for being um, – I understand that you feel, you know, let's not call it brave – but let's say this, um, let me add it, I'll say it in a Christian sense. John, the Lord handed you a cup and you've drunk from it and many people <laughs> poured theirs out. So I am, I'm honored to spend this time with you and I want to have you on again. And may uh, I send and you me, those books? Is that me, okay? Yeah, of course. Of yeah. course. I'd be, I'd, I'd be honored that you would take the time. I think what makes me the saddest is not the fact of what's happening. I've got my head around that. I see it firsthand. I've looked into the face of these devils and seen it. What upsets me the most is the total lack of care people have for each other, where they just go along with it yeah. and they value their direct debits more than they do the life of a child. I can't get my head around that. I would throw myself under the bus for any stranger or their child, and I wouldn't even yeah. think about it if I saw someone in deadly threat, you know, we go back to the man walking across the road blind. Yeah. Would you get your phone out or would you help him? I couldn't walk past. I would have to help. Brother, and that's what saddens me the most is, is seeing the lack of care. Do, are you familiar with the phrase, the least of these? No, no. The Lord Jesus said, this is the most haunting phrase. As you treat the least of these, so you treat me. And he said, when I was in prison, you didn't come and visit me. When I was hungry, you did not feed me. When I was thirsty, you did not give me drink. He inhabits the least of these. They're his children. So what you've just said indicates to me that the Lord Jesus is calling you, brother, um, because you just embodied what the Lord Jesus is. I don't want to say lectured, but that is what we are called to do is to see the face of God in the beggar, uh, even in the criminal. Right. And in your mm. case, your love for these people and how you treat people um, in, in your practice and that you won't charge for the for a funeral, even picking up the cost of a casket for a child. You embody what we are to be as Christians um, and what we when we do the right thing, we are an MK family funeral services. I know exactly where I'd go if I was dealing with a loved one's death. Um, we have to wrap this up and I need to just thank you. And I'm going to send you those books. We're going to have you back on and just go with God's good grace. Even if you don't believe in him, John, he believes in you and he loves you dearly. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for taking the time to listen as well. And we'll do it again. Thank you, sir. Bye. 
It may well be the best ending to an interview I've ever had. This is the Todd Herman Show. Please go be well, be strong, be kind. And would you please say a prayer that the Lord will call John Alooney to himself, John Alooney and his family.